Thank you, Brian. Okay, uh, I'm going to ask the other Brian, our, our roving, I guess our roving reporter, I don't know, you're not going to be reporting anything, except what people are saying. So uh, I asked you to think about a clash, an epic clash throughout history. Uh, go for it. Anybody want to share one or two? Or everybody share one. Anybody? Uh, Brian, over here. And it, by the way, we didn't plant him to do this. When, when Lord Aragorn led the elves and the men of Gondor to fight the dark forces of Sauron, you remember the third age of Middle-earth? I have no idea what he said. Okay, let's, let's see if Walt has one that makes some sense here. I actually do know. David versus Goliath. David, okay, David versus Goliath. Anybody else? Right, Here's Lord. one. The Wars of the Roses. The Wars of the Roses. Rocky and Apollo Creed. <laughs> Rocky and Apollo Creed. Uh, what was that? Uh, movie seven or eight? Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. It was two or three. Uh, the Spartans versus the Persians. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other epic class? Okay. I was thinking like North Carolina barbecue, South Carolina barbecue. Uh, but... I, I, so I'm going to build on that, but it's the Spartans against the Wolverines. <laughs> okay. All right. Any others? Here we go, Pam. I think of the Native Americans and just the settlers. Yeah, absolutely. Native American settlers. Any more? All right. Well, you know, we sit, we're sitting right here in a town where uh, the Civil War uh, took place, so that's another epic clash, right? Um, we live in a broader region where it's known just for the, the epicenter of political clashes, red versus blue. Um, in our history, uh, recent history, we've seen incredible uh, clashes between uh, law enforcement and protesters going back to the civil rights, Vietnam era, and here last few weeks. Uh, in the scripture that Brian read earlier, quite lengthy, and the reason why it was that lengthy is because what we see here is the body of this incredible clash, this incredible clash between Jesus and and the religious leaders, and as, as, you, as you heard the text read, and hopefully you'll go home and read it as well, you can just see it escalates, and it actually escalates quite quickly. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus was angry with them and deeply distressed. So anytime you read in the Bible that Jesus was deeply distressed or angry, pay attention, read that over and over. It's good for us to, to mark that. And then in verse 6, we find the Pharisees plotting with a political group loyal to King Herod, about how they can kill Jesus. Now, when we open this series, one of the things we mention is that Mark's gospel moves very quickly. You can, if you read Mark as a whole, you can see it's constantly saying immediately Jesus did this, immediately Jesus did that. Right here, just in the opening of chapter 3, we have the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. In Matthew and Luke, they don't even have Jesus out of diapers by the time they get to chapter 3. And so Mark moves quickly. And we see here this epic clash setting the stage. Let me invite you to take your teaching notes out that we provided for you if you like taking notes or some that you have from home uh, because we are going to continue this series. And one of the things that I'd like us to see is that on, on first reading, it looks like this is an epic clash between simply uh, how you uh, engage in various religious practices. 
But when you scratch beneath the surface, what you see is a clash of vision. A clash of vision of what it means to represent the heart of God in the world. A clash between what real heart-based obedience to God looks like. A clash between a vision for life and a clash between a dead-end path of lifeless religion. And we see three expressions of this epic clash coming out in four rapid-fire confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And the first expression I want us to note here is a clash between compassion and condemnation. A clash between compassion and condemnation. Our text opens with Jesus calling Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. Now, what is interesting is in Mark, the actual identity of Levi is unclear. Most believe that Levi was also known as Matthew and that Matthew was his Greek name and Levi was his Jewish name, but there are some scholars who believe differently. What we do know for certain is Levi was a tax collector and tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. They were... Jews who worked for the Roman government. They were commissioned to collect taxes for Rome, and they were allowed to keep anything over and above what Rome required them to send in. And so they were often incredibly despised by the people. Jesus not only calls Levi to follow him, but he also dines with Levi and his tax-collecting friends, and then simply, as the, the gospel records, an assortment of sinful people. Now, one interesting discrepancy. Our text says that Jesus dined at Levi's house, and some translations definitely say that. But according to N.T. Wright and other scholars, they contend the Greek actually implies that Jesus had Levi and Levi's cast of characters into the house where Jesus was staying. Now, think about that for a moment, if that's the case. It's one thing to say, okay, this rabbi is going out and he's finding sinful people and tax collectors and he's eating with them where they are. It's another thing in the custom of the first century ancient Near East to open your home where hospitality is such a high mark of how you engage people. It's another thing to say, hey, come on over to my house. Let me have you here. It's absolutely stunning. This sets up this clash with the Pharisees. They looked upon Levi and his friends with condemnation. There's no way that they would have anything to do with a sinful person, get this, unless that sinful person repented first in their way of repentance. But Jesus hung out with sinful people for the purpose of loving them and leading them to a place of repentance. You see, Jesus didn't just hang out with the tax collectors and sinful people just to have a party with them. No, he went there driven by deep compassion and he wanted them to know the heart of God. He wanted them to be reconciled with God. He wanted them to be healed spiritually. He saw them. He looked upon them with compassion, not condemnation. He saw them as worthy of the life of God. Worthy of the life of God. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with them. They had written them off when it comes to God's grace. Somewhere 
in the history of the church, in some corners of the church, we have equated showing compassion and hospitality to those who are far from God with condoning sinful behavior. Let me say that again. Somewhere in the history of the church, in some corners of the church, we have equated showing compassion and hospitality to those who are far from God with condoning sinful behavior. We have on one hand claimed to be a missionary people, and yet on the other we seem to at times abandon the mission field right in front of us. We've lost the power and principle of proximity. To love people, you have to draw near to them like our Lord did. Befriend them, care about them, and deeply desire God's best for them, which is spiritual healing, being reconciled with God, drawing near to Him. That's what Jesus did. And the religious leaders of His day wanted to cancel Him for it. Compassion, not condemnation, is the spirit captured in a story True story told by Tony Campolo, retired pastor in Philadelphia. He had flown to Honolulu, and because of the time change, uh, he found it really difficult to sleep. And so 3.30 in the morning, one morning, he went out to this diner just to get something to eat. And he noticed when uh, he was in the diner, uh, there was uh, a group of, of prostitutes there. And, and one of the ladies mentioned that it was her 39th birthday. And as soon as she mentioned it was her 39th birthday, uh, the other group, of, uh, the others in the, the group said, well, what do you want, a birthday party? And she retreated to her defensive shell, and she said, I've never had a birthday party in my life. And so Campola went back the next night. And between that night and the night he went back, he arranged to have a birthday cake made. He arranged to have a gift purchased. And when the group came in again, they all uh, joined in singing happy birthday. They had the birthday cake, and they gave her the gift. And as she uh, took the cake after the party was over, she took the cake and the gift she was about to head home, Campolo said, let me pray for you. And he prayed for her. And he prayed for God's best for her life. He prayed for God's salvation over her life. He prayed for God's protection over her life. And then the owner of the diner said, hey, I didn't know you were a pastor. I wouldn't have let you have the, the party. And he said, what kind of church do you belong to? And he said, I belong to a church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that kind of church. And I want OTCC to be that kind of church. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's easy to slip into the role of the Pharisee. It's easy to slip into the role of condemnation because condemnation is so much easier than compassion, isn't it? Condemnation, you can just keep people at an arm's length and judge them and put them down and put yourself up. Compassion means you wade into the messiness of a greasy spoon diner at 3.30 in the morning. We all know John 3.16. For God so, so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. How many has John 3.17 memorized? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through 
him. The beautiful life of Jesus is one of compassion, not condemnation. But the clashes continue. Because this is an epic clash here. And we see joy versus misery. The second clash had to do with the practice of fasting. Now, fasting is in now as a way to lose weight. However, down through the ages, it's been a spiritual discipline as a way to deny oneself in order to draw near to God and to be able to focus on God. But according to one scholar, the idea of fasting in Judaism during the time of Jesus was from Jesus' perspective incompatible with the coming of the kingdom of God. So those in Judaism during that time, for example, they would fast because of their fear of demons. But Jesus came and he bound Satan and had power over him. They would fast out of self-renunciation, which was intended to impress God. But grace doesn't work that way. We receive God's grace as God's greatest gift. Or fasting was to atone for sin, but Jesus was the one who could forgive sins and the only one who could atone for them. So the Pharisees observed Jesus and his disciples eating and drinking and feasting, and they get frustrated. Even John the Baptist's disciples fasted. But Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God and salvation was that of a banquet feast and an open table. To fast in the presence of Jesus would be like going to a, just a, a massive wedding today with all the stops pulled out, all the trimmings. It'd be like going to a massive wedding and then saying, oh, no, thank you. I don't want to eat cake. I'm fasting. Fasting was and is meant to draw you near to the heart of God. And now we see in our text the heart of God had drawn near. The heart of God was standing right in front of them. Time to feast, not time to fast. There would be time for fasting later. So Jesus says he's doing a new thing. And to try to combine the old with the new would be futile. And that's what it meant when he gave the analogies of of old wine into new wineskins or a new patch on an old garment. In this case, just simply the old and new don't mix well. Religion that is gloomy forgets the why of faith and focuses on the how. Religion that is misery focuses on the why, or the how, excuse me, and not the why of faith. I don't know if any of you were following the massive controversy in uh, the Catholic Church about one pronoun that a priest uttered in baptisms in Arizona, and now there's a fear that thousands of baptisms have been invalidated. Now, I'm not being disrespectful, but that is a focus on the how and not the why. Christianity is not meant to be a long slog of joyless, gloomy duty. Even 25 minutes into the sermon. It's not a long slog, trust me. It's meant to be a fountain of life overflowing with joy. This not, does not mean we deny sadness or grief or pain. It just means that we have a deep gladness in Jesus, even in our pain, and that God is going to work for the good, and God is going to weave a wonderful work of redemption. No one is drawn to following a lifeless faith that is marked by misery and gloominess. One scholar wrote, a gloomy legalistic faith is like a piano student who plays all the right notes but fails to make music. 
It's like an actor in a B movie who woodenly recites a memorized script, but who does not do anything to bring conviction to the role. Or it's like a dancer who carefully counts the steps, but never cuts loose and dances. That's religion that is marked by gloominess and misery rather than the life and the joy of Jesus. This past week, I was privileged to share with some, uh, a, a period of, of teaching time with some young uh, ministry students, and some of them told incredible stories of hardship and difficulty as God called them out of uh, careers they were in and into seminary. And yet, even though there was incredible hardship that they described, they did so with a spirit of joy on how God worked and how God uh, came through for them and how God opened doors that, would pre- that were previously closed so that they could step into their calling and step in and serve. It was an incredible experience. Our Lord was a joy bringer, joy over misery. There was a clash here. And then our last clash, I've simply labeled for us mercy versus meanness. The last two clashes had to do with the Sabbath. And in particular, from the Pharisees' point of view, Jesus' flaunting of Sabbath rules and regulations. Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field on a Sabbath day, and they were hungry. So they started picking grain to eat. The Pharisees considered this a violation because it was work. Then Jesus said something interesting. He said, hang on a second. The Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people. It was made to help you. It was made to, to, to nurture you and to renew your spirit. You weren't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping is really, really good. We need more of it in our culture. And the purpose of the Sabbath is to set aside a 24-hour period for rest and renewal. It is to cease from your labor for one day a week and focus on your relationship with God and with others. In the time of Jesus, think about this for a moment. In the time of Jesus, most people were either day laborers or they were fisher uh, men and would go out and fish and catch fish and sell the fish, or they would sell crops. And it was this economy where if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. And so imagine here comes this idea of the Sabbath. And not only is it this, this day of rest and renewal and to be refreshed, but it also is this incredible uh, expression of trust in God. God, I count on you to provide for me seven days a week on six days of work. And it was this beautiful proclamation, this beautiful expression, and it's so needed in our time. We need to unplug from our work, and step into the sacred. So please know here, Jesus wasn't doing away with the idea of the Sabbath. He is just saying it was a gift for humankind to be more human. The Pharisees used it as a weapon to trap people in their suffocating, legalistic web of meaningless rules. They were so wrapped up with this that they preferred that a man with a withered hand not be healed because it was on the Sabbath. To prefer that people go hungry and to prefer that people go without healing that is available to them right now, I don't know about you, 
But that's just meanness and not mercy. To prefer people go hungry and not healed is meanness and not mercy. Whether we like it or not, some outside the church have the impression that the church is mean. Some churches that make the headlines seem to always be shouting for what they're against rather than what they're for. We've seen over the last few decades the politicization of faith in our country like never before. And we've seen it with a a spirit of meanness to those who disagree. We've seen people storm our capital with signs of Jesus in one hand and meanness coming out of their mouth on the other. And we've seen incredible intolerance by those on the left against those on the right who express deeply held conviction, meanness, and not mercy. Judgment and not seeking to understand. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. Let that one just sit with you for a little bit. Jesus stood for mercy. And here's what's incredible and unthinkable. These religious leaders who accused Jesus of being unholy on the Sabbath, when this was all over, they went and conspired with a political leader to kill him. Now, what is unholy in that equation? Meanness. But Jesus stood for mercy. He was marked by compassion. He was marked by joy. He was marked by mercy. His opponents, condemnation, misery, and meanness. I don't know about you, but I hope for my life, and I hope for the life of this congregation, that we will always side with Jesus, that we'll seek to be compassionate, not condemning, joyful, not gloomy, and merciful, and not mean. I know we will. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this incredible picture of your heart that we see in the beautiful life of Jesus. In this picture, God, you show us that you love us and that you care for us and that even while we're still sinners, that you loved us first and you sent Jesus to die for us. And so, Lord, I thank you for this picture of compassion Lord, that Jesus showed us that no matter how far people are from God, that we're to go and we're to reach. Lord, and we're to proclaim Your love and Your salvation and Your healing. Lord, I want to I pray for every person in this room today. They might be walking far from You today. Please let them know You love them. If the only thing they hear today, let them know that you love them and you desperately want them home next to your heart. God, I thank you for the vision that we have here of joy and that the, the life of faith is a life of joy. It's a life of deep gladness. It's a life that doesn't deny pain but, but turns to you and finds our deepest joy in the reality that you're with us no matter what. 
And Lord, that You call each one of us to a place of mercy just like You've been merciful to us. So Lord, I pray for each one of us today that we would let these marks of Your life fall deeply into our hearts. Let us receive them and let us live them for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.